Good evening, uh, ladies and gentlemen. It's a great pleasure to welcome you uh, to tonight's uh, edition of, uh, well, I suppose it's the Ideas uh, Talk Show. Talk show yes. And I'm in the uh, somewhat unexpected uh, role of, of moderator or anchor as they like to say in the United States, for what is going to be, I'm sure, a very lively discussion between my two uh, esteemed colleagues in the ideas uh, department or, or institute or entity or whatever ideas is. Thing. It's part of the cloud. I We're think. The brainery. The brainery. I like the brainery. Um, the, um, uh, the, the subject of our discussion this evening uh, is out of Europe, the United States in an Asian age. And we're extremely fortunate to have two very distinguished experts in the field of international history and international relations to discuss this. Um, you all know who they are, uh, but for the sake of formality and because there may be somebody one day watching this on the internet uh, far, far from the LSC, let me uh, formally introduce uh, my colleagues. On my uh, right, Professor Michael, or as he prefers to be known, Mick Cox. Uh, we discovered about Professor Cox last night that he is a, a Baroque Trotskyite, or was. Was. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, he, I should say. He was the punk Tory. And I was the punk Tory. Uh, we thereby identified ourselves by both our political allegiance. Uh, in the 1980s and our musical taste. I was for the jam and he was for Queen. Uh, when, when not listening to glam rock, uh, Professor Cox is a leading authority on international relations, written widely uh, on late 20th century uh, politics. And I have here in my hand a piece of paper Ooh. from her, Cox, oh, uh, entitled Power Shift, Rising East, Declining West, reflections, Ooh. and uh, that means that I know a little bit about what he may uh, say. To my left, uh, his co-director uh, of the Ideas uh, Brainery, uh, <laughs> Professor Arne Westad, uh, I believe the world's leading authority today on the international history, the global history uh, of the Cold War. And I have a sense that despite their being colleagues and co-directors, they don't entirely agree on this particular subject. There is, however, I should say right at the outset, one thing about which we three do agree, uh, and that is uh, that uh, we very much hope Arsenal win at home tonight just, just, uh, against that terrifying uh, opposition of Leighton Orient. Uh, that's on our minds. If we seem at all distracted as the clock edges towards a quarter to eight, uh, if we start checking our phones in the final 15 minutes of this discussion, uh, then put it down to our uh, fever pitch. Let me now open the uh, formal uh, discussion by inviting uh, uh, Professor Cox, or I'm going to call him Mick, Mick. just like we were on telly. Mick, um, out of Europe, the United States in an Asian age, it's a kind of it's a, it's, a, it's a title that covers practically every corner mm. of the globe. Mm. Let, let, me, let me throw it at you first. Is, is, the, uh, is the United States essentially getting out of Europe because the 21st century is going to be the Asian century? Uh, the quick answer to that is no. 
for all sorts of pretty obvious economic, strategic, and political reasons. Uh, the United States and Europe still, in my opinion, still form what I might call the, still, or maybe lessening so, the axis of much of what still goes on in the world. And I suppose part of what my argument is in that paper is to say there's been so much uh, talk, quite much legitimate, of course, and much by economists, um, about the emergence of Asia and the rise of China um, economically, that I think an important continuity, a structural fact in international relations and international life has been left out of that argument about, about the continuing importance of the transatlantic relations in, in all the dimensions that I've been talking. If you like, the headline news goes to Asia, it goes to the Pacific, it goes to China. It even talks about Obama being the, you know, the first Asian president of the United States with less and less interest in the Atlantic. And part of what I try to do there is trying to, in a sense, challenge that and, and say, well, hold on, you know, change is happening, but be careful how, how we read that change within the context of certain important continuities. That's, that's my first point. The second point I'd make is this, that I think there's been, again, big, big, I mean, I, I was going to read a little quote out from one of the books that I occasionally read. Um, you know, Mrs. Clinton gets on a plane, where does the, the, first, the first visit of the Secretary of State of, of the US, where does she go to? She goes to Asia. Uh, Obama takes Winston Churchill out of the White House and replaces it with Abraham Lincoln. But there you go. Um, all this is kind of indicative of, a, of an argument about the United States tilting almost completely um, away from you, or at least in serious ways, away from, uh, away from Europe. And towards, and towards Asia. And again, of course, the United States has always been an Asian power. I'm not sure there's anything fundamentally new going on here. And I think, again, once again, this simply leaves out an important part of America's global reach, which is still very much connected to the transatlantic economy, to NATO, to the political relationships it has, it has with the, the Europeans. So that's, that's the kind of rather long, rather over-elaborate answer to your very short question. Well, let, let me, thank you, let me throw that, uh, that across uh, to uh, Arne Westad. Before we, before we begin to break this up into its component parts, mm. because very properly, Mick, you, you gave us uh, a tour d'horizon of the different ways in which the United States and Europe remain interconnected. Uh, and the economic is one, mm. uh, the strategic or military is another, and of course there are cultural uh, uh, and other ties that we could discuss. I think one useful way to proceed might be indeed to break it up into those mm. strands. But first, give us your general reflections, Anna. I mean, is, is, uh, is Mick right to say that despite the headlines of an Asian orientation and an, and an end to the, the Atlantic uh, world, which certainly dominated most of the post-war period, um, w we actually are still, still seeing continuity uh, and a, a continued uh, dominance, if you like, of the world by, by the old west of, of, of Europe and North America. What's your take on this? I think you know, that we, we see less and less continuity, uh, and we see more and more of a break. Now, I think the period that we are in now is a period in which we are seeing a very significant break uh, on several of the axes that we've been discussing between what has been <coughs> going on in the past, really going back to the end of the second World War and what we will see in the future. Um, I'm probably going to take more of the long view in this discussion, I mean, in some general sense. So I think we have to look at trends that have been going on since at least around 1980. 
and will be going on for some time yet. I mean, I'm, I'm quite convinced that uh, in the future, Asia will be significantly more important for US foreign policy than, than, than what Europe will be. Um, and I think m most of the reasons that we can see for that today are, are economic. I mean, they're structurally uh, connected to the developments in the US economy. I often use the, 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 the parallel with regard to explaining this, that in 1955 or thereabouts, General Motors was by far the largest company in the United States. It contributed something around 3% of the overall uh, US GDP. Today, the biggest company in the United States, by far, in terms of its contribution to the GDP, is Walmart. And beside having a very lamentable record in terms of labor relations, um, it also serves a role which I think is essential to understand in, in terms of understanding this global power shift. It is, and I, 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 I had a quote in here uh, from Giovanni Arigi, someone I would like to turn to later on as well, um, passed away unfortunately last year, great, great friend of mine, great Marxist economist, who characterized Walmart's role as being, quote, primarily a commercial intermediary between Asian subcontractors who manufacture most of their products and US consumers who buy them. And clearly, this kind of position is unsustainable in the longer run. And it will mean that increasingly, it is what goes on in Asia, with China at the moment at the focus, but we're not only talking about China. We're talking about a, a very large section of Asia, going from India via Indonesia and, 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 to, and to East Asia, to, 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 to China. Um, that's going to put pressure on the orientation that the United States has had up to now. Now, the United States is going to continue to be involved in Europe. There is absolutely no doubt about that. There are cultural ties that bind that are important. There are institutional ties that bind that are, are important. But Europe will be of less and less relevance to the US global strategy in terms of what the United States uh, wants to achieve. Um, so if we formulate the question as being, will Asia be significantly more important in international affairs and for US foreign policy over the next generation. That's absolutely clear. I mean, there's no doubt about that. The big question for me is how the United States will handle that transition, how it would handle it with regard to its existing allies, and how it will handle it, perhaps more importantly, in terms of the decline in its hegemonic position overall. That's the big question for me. Will this be a graceful decline in hegemony? Uh, a bit like the British one. Oh, yeah. Or will it be one that <laughs> leads to intense conflict? Um, will the United States endanger the system that it has created and that Britain helped create before it uh, through what it goes into in the face where it's facing an increasing set of old variable of, of, of issues, Asian power? That's the key. Let's, let's turn then to the economic uh, dimension of, of the, the, the story because your Walmart example is, I think, an extremely powerful one. Viewed from, from the vantage points of the United States where I, I spend mo most of my, my time, uh, there's no question that if you are a company on the S&P 500, your only real hope of uh, making your numbers in the last three years has been Asia. The financial crisis, uh, it's often forgotten, 
dealt a very heavy blow to the Atlantic model. Mm. Because although it was a crisis made in America and based in American financial uh, technology, European banks were as much affected as American banks, and European economies actually suffered more in aggregate yeah. mm. than the US did. The, the loss of output was greater if you take uh, the EU as a whole than the US as a whole. Whereas mm. China, although it slowed down, was still growing even at the lowest uh, point after uh, the Lehman failure at a remarkably rapid rate. And it not only pulled the rest of Asia and other emerging markets out of what had for a time seemed like Great Depression 2.0, it also pulled an awful lot of American companies uh, and, of course, the U.S. stock market out of that uh, Great Depression scenario too. So, so make, I mean, I don't want to appear well, to take sides. No, no, you would, would you'd never most, want to do that. Most yeah. improper, even though I don't agree with you. Um, <laughs> Two against one. It is. It's okay, so, I don't mind. It's so unfair, but there Not at is. all. Um, you'll, you'll be defeated anyway. So. The, the, <laughs> yeah, in weight terms, it's quite easy. <laughs> Ooh. Sweet. So, okay. come on. <laughs> Right. Push back. The economic story <coughs> from right, an American corporate point right, of view okay. is a no-brainer. Out of Europe, you bet. Let's get to no, Asia no, no, before well, we're yeah. there. Okay, fine. Yeah. Let me just pick up two or three points there. Uh, 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 let me take up I mean, one of the points that Arnie made about break rather than continuity. I mean, one of the breaks and one of the discontinuities that people have been predicting for 30 or 40 years, since indeed going back even further now, back to the 1960s, one of the great fundamental breaks that people have been predicting... Um, has been the break in what we call Pax Americana, uh, American power. Uh, as, a as, as part of that generation of what mm. we call punk trots now, if you want, uh, of the 1960s, there we were celebrating the, the decline of the American empire in the 1960s. And what did we get at the end of the 1970s? We got Ronald Reagan. Um, and then uh, uh, one of your predecessors, of course, Paul Kennedy, in a very fine book, Rise and Fall of the Great Powers, published in 1987, uh, which I think is a brilliant book and, and you know, much attacked. You know, nonetheless, Paul attached that famous chapter on America in that book, an, an imperial overstretch. And two years later, the war came down. Uh, three years later, the United States was rampaging you know, in the first Iraq war. Three years later, the rise of Japan turned out not to be the rise of Japan. And over former Yugoslavia, uh, the, the final peace deal was cut not in Rome uh, or, it, or in London. It was cut in Dayton, Ohio, which I think is a town in the United States. Um, it is certainly true. It is certainly true that you know, a, conjuncture, a, a series of factors have come together. Certain streams have come together to form a river of a new decline debate. I like that, by the way. That's a nice metaphor. Nice image. Um, and, and part of that is about the financial crisis, without doubt. And part of that, of course, is Azani, you know, brilliantly written on this, you know, on, on the rise of China. But I suppose I'm putting out a warning sign uh, about the decline debate, um, and not because I want to celebrate hegemony forever, and I know one or two people in this audience disagree with me quite strongly, but I suppose I do go back to one of the great IR professors of this institution called Susan Strange, who wrote very brilliantly, and it seems to me great, with great prescience, about what she called structural power and the structural power of the United States, both in economic terms, in terms of the dollar as the reserve currency, in terms of its, she didn't use the word soft power, Susan never used words like soft, she'd never do things like that, uh, but I think that soft power is implied within that. 
the fact that the United States still is seen, if not as a model as in, in, the, in, the, in the celebrated sense that it was before 2007-8. Nonetheless, I said the other day in the debate about China, that a lot of people around the world can see themselves in America. They can actually see themselves in the United States. Irish Americans, Jewish Americans, maybe even Chinese people can see themselves in the United States. It does represent a kind of a model beyond just the, the neoliberal reductionist economic model. It's something more. And I still think that has enormous appeal and enormous attraction. And the diversity and, and the generation of ideas is still there. So I, I suppose really what I'm trying to say here is that, yes, of course it has gone through the, the financial crisis. Of course it is becoming, if you like, financially dependent more on, on China. We know that from, the, from you know, all the sales bonds and things like that. And of course the world is shifting, but I, I'm simply trying to argue that at the heart of the international order, it seems to me still, is something which, are, you know, without sounding you know, overly celebratory, but I think I'm just trying to call the things as it are, there's a simple central fact of indispensability, if you wish. Or it, the system can't function without America at the heart of it. And, it, and America has some major structural, geographical, historical, po political, cultural advantages which I'm not sure anything anybody else can, can emulate. This is why there may be an economic shift taking place, as Arnie said. I'm not sure there's a power shift taking place, and maybe we make, hmm. need to make an important distinction here between economic transformations taking place and a power shift taking place. And perhaps there's a mismatch between some of the economic things that are going on in the world and the power, but it seems to me at the heart of the, of the international order as a power order remains, re remains, hmm. remains the US. And I think that is an important continuity and whatever the weakening of that is, it still seems to me it's going to remain primus inter pares in, in that fundamental sense. The other quick point I'd make um, is just this question about Asia, what we mean by Asia. Um, in the same way that the term West, which you, of course, have used, and we've all used, and we're about to use, you know, contains within it all sorts of problems, contradictions, and, and, and problems, essentially. What we mean by the West, who's in the West, what is the West? Um, geographically, the term Asia, although it's a geographical term, when people talk about the rise of Asia, uh, I suppose I, I, I don't dispute that. I mean, you know, the economic indicators are all there, aren't they? Aren't they? But let's just take one issue there, though, uh, Neil. The rise of China, because that's really what we're talking about, largely. Largely, I think that's what we're primarily talking This is the, the new variable. This is the new factor. This is the new kid on the block. It's not the rise of Japan in, in the sense that you know, nobody talks about that anymore. It's, it, you know, others are emerging. India, of course, is very important. But it's the rise of China. Well, okay, and Arnie knows this as, uh, better than I do, I'm sure. But you know, the, the problem for China isn't that it's not going to continue to grow. I'm sure it will. And, uh, you know, and long may it do so. And long are we dependent on that to do so. But we have found that over the last two years, as, as China rises within Asia, many Asian states become unsettled. <laughs> Uh, they become worried for all sorts of reasons to do with the political character of the Chinese regime, largely. Sure. Um, and what do we see many of these Asian states do in this context of, of an emerging or rising China? Uh, as, we saw over, as we saw over South Korea, as we've seen in terms of Japan, as we've seen in terms of Vietnam, uh, ironically, another communist mm. state, we've seen them in a sense, although whatever their economic relations are, yeah. with China, politically and strategically they see themselves in a sense within a framework of security still provided by the United States and, and I think that is a problem about defining the notion of a generalized thing called the rise of Asia. But that's, oh, no, part, that's part of the problem though, Mick. I mean this, mm. is, this is where the issue is really, I think, in terms of the disagreement that we have here. I think 
there is no doubt that many Asian states will try to hedge in security terms against the rise of China. Will they be able to do so? Uh, particularly if part of the game, as it seems to be at the moment, from several of them, and you are entirely correct on that, Mick, mm. is to draw the United States further in to the East and Southeast Asian security equation. And the problem here is that I have no doubt that over the next 10 years or so, the United States will remain the most powerful state by far in military terms in the world. The United States now spends at least 10 times more on its military than what China does. And there hasn't been much change, actually, mm. with regard uh, to that equation over the last few years, in spite of China's attempts to improve its military capacity. But that is part of the problem. I mean, when your economy looks like what the American economy looks like today, in comparative terms, keeping the kind of military establishment that the United States has, fighting the kinds of wars that the United States does, simply will not remain sustainable. It's not the kind of situation that I think anyone who understands anything about economics can foresee 10 years from now, even if there is a substantial recovery, mm. which I think is quite possible, yeah, exactly. in, in the US economy in, in, in real terms. I mean, the problem is that this will be far too expensive, far too difficult to organize. And and this is perhaps the most crucial point mm -hmm. in terms of the debate, I think, in, 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 in general terms, as far as the United States goes. It cannot be defended vis-a-vis -vis the American population. I mean, I think part of what we are seeing today, part of the political unrest that we're seeing in the United States today, has a lot to do with people's uncertainty about the United States' position in, in, in overall terms. It takes very different sort of political uh, uh, outlets, I mean, all the way from you know, the Tea Party movement to what, it, what, it, what is happening in the States, etc., etc. Uh, but there is a deep uncertainty about that road. I think it will be much harder to mobilize uh, American support domestically for the kind of adventures that they've been involved themselves in over the past 10 years, when you see what the economic reality will be 10 years from now. So, I mean, these things are linked. Mm. Although Mick is entirely right in saying, and, and Neil has written well about this as well, that, I mean, no one believes that the United States is going to abdicate overnight as the world's supreme military great power. That's not going to happen. But the question is what will happen 10 to 15 years from now when it is clear, I think, beyond any doubt that both in, in relative and in real terms that kind of position is unsustainable. Mm. That's, the, that's the big question. And, and, and the issue then becomes in political terms, how will that relative decline be managed? One of the, the really striking features of the debate at the moment about U.S. fiscal policy, which is a central concern of, of mine, is mm. the way in which defense expenditure is very far from ring-fenced. Uh, if you do the, the back-of-envelope arithmetic, even assuming that there's no significant increase in long-term interest rates, in other words, in the borrowing costs of the United States, mm. Uh, the U.S. is going to carry on borrowing money every year for the rest of time hmm. uh, with a trillion dollars as a fairly standard amount, at least in the short term. But th there's never again a balanced budget, even hmm. on a time horizon out to the 2080s, absent radical changes in, in policy. Now, hmm. if that happens, a rising share of federal tax revenues uh, is absorbed by interest payments, even with sure. low rates. Mm. And the obvious uh, squeeze will be 
uh, a squeeze of uh, military expenditure because unlike entitlements like Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid, mm. uh, it is actually yeah. cuttable, politically yeah. cuttable. Uh, mm. And I've seen projections by the Congressional Budget Office of how much the U.S. would save if its overseas troop deployment was reduced to 30,000. Mm. The mm. fact that that's even being costed mm. by the Congressional Budget Office tells you a lot. Now remember, this is a question out of Europe that we're asking here. Mm. Not, will the United States evaporate into thin yeah. air? I don't think anybody's making mm. that argument. Mm. The issue is whether the predicament that the United States finds itself in, both economically and militarily, mm. will cause it to disengage from Europe. Mm. Now, Mick, you talked about the economic uh, issue and then uh, uh, and mentioned in your opening remarks also military issues as well as soft power, Joe Nye's great phrase. Mm. Let's talk about the military issue here because mm. it seems absolutely clear that if there's one thing that you could easily reduce it's the U.S. military presence mm. in Western Europe, which looks more and more like a relic of, of the Cold War. Yeah, well, there's a quick answer to that. I mean, the fact of the matter is that since the end of the Cold War in 89 and then disintegration of the USSR in uh, two years later in 1991, effectively in military terms, you know, the United States in part has got out of Europe. Uh, you know, we had 375,000 active service men and women of Americans within Europe in the period up until 89 and 1991 mm -hmm. and through the 1990s of course that's been reduced down to 70,000 going down so the, mm -hmm. the, the issue is not whether it's going to stay in Europe the question is will it maintain it will Europe still remain important for it in other ways I do accept one fundamental point mm -hmm. the Cold War privileged Europe mm -hmm. in many ways and the end of the Cold War has posed a problem for that transatlantic relationship and Europe's relationship with the United States I accept that that, that completely and America's eyes, in a sense, have wandered much wider than outside the fundamental, you know, the Fulda Gap, those kind of wonderful things we used to talk about mm -hmm. in the 1980s, about the, the Russians with snow on their boots or whatever, reaching mm -hmm. Dublin within four days, um, and all the rest of that. I mean, I, I accept that that, that, that that has shifted, and there's no doubt about that. And Europe, Europe's relationship, therefore, the United States has altered. I'm simply arguing that I don't think it's altered to such a degree and to such an extent that what we're going to see is a complete shift in America, or maybe a major shift in America's emphasis away from Europe to, to, to the Pacific or towards Asia. I think they simply recalibrate what they do. And they've been extraordinarily adaptive and pragmatic in abilities to do it. They can still see that Europe for them is still a politically most like them than anybody else. And they can find a conversation with Europeans easier than with anybody else. 20 years after the Cold War, that is still broadly speaking the case. Now, it may be changing, it may shift over the next 20 years, but I don't do a prediction no more than you do, as you know. Um, secondly, I think in, in this context, the cultural aspects of, of connection are, st are still not insignificant with, with Europeans. Now, again, that may be shifting, and, and in 20 years' time, it may shift. All I'm saying is, still, 20 years after the end of the Cold War, the most important military alliance we still have is one which is transatlantic in, 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 okay, in its foundations. Let, let's stick on that military issue before we move on. I'll come on back on another issue now, yeah, sure. Because there does seem to be a question mark over the, the future of NATO mm. and the entire structure, military structure mm. of transatlantic uh, relations. Is, is NATO, what is NATO for now if there is, yeah, well, is no uh, yeah, yeah, army yeah, okay. of Russians well, in, but I mean, in the All right, well, let me ask this one, Arnie, and let you come well, in. Let me say one thing. All right, you say one thing. Uh, very say briefly right. on, on NATO, uh, and right. with regard to the European world. I mean, I think the continued role that the U.S. alliances in, in Europe are going to have will be with regard to things that are not happening in Europe. 
I mean, Europe increasingly becomes, and it's particularly striking today when we look at what's happening in North Africa, uh, and maybe happening in other parts of the Middle East, Europe becomes to some extent a strategic base for US power. And it has, you know, a great significance, some parts of Europe more than others, for that purpose. So I'm not among those who argue that the only significance of Europe for the United States in 20 years' time would be as a producer of uh, much-loved luxury goods, uh, expensive watches, and etc., and to some extent, possibly, with London at the core as a financial center. Uh, but I do think that in military terms, uh, the whole purpose of NATO has changed, mm. and the role of Europe within NATO has changed. It is now an appendix to American power out of out of region, as they used to say, outside Europe. Mm. So. Okay. And there's just a data point, and that's quite interesting. Um, I, I was chatting to uh, uh, somebody who works uh, for the American military uh, and is based in Germany, and he was, he was saying that there's actually substantial investment in the Heidelberg area being mm. made by the Pentagon. So what's really striking is that the future of Europe may well be, to, as it has already uh, become, to be the air base and medical center for the deployment of US troops mm. in, the, in the Middle East, since after mm. all, Iraq did not prove to be a particularly secure mm. place mm. for permanent long-term uh, long US military presence. So mm. I, I mean, that means that the US doesn't get out of Europe in the mm. sense of withdrawing its troops and saying goodbye. Sure. Uh, mm. On the contrary, it may, it may indeed even increase mm. its presence relative to, <coughs> to 10 years ago if it's going to find itself dealing with an ongoing crisis sure. in the news. Look, I, on the question of evolution and change, break continuity, which is what Arnie raised at the very beginning, I mean, clearly NATO's had to evolve since the end of mm. the Cold War. It's evolved since the collapse of the USSR in 19, uh, 1991. Um, it's enlarged itself you know, into, in, into Central Europe and Eastern Europe with some fairly disastrous consequences. And I, I was always opposed to, to, to meddling in Ukrainian affairs and Georgian affairs because I thought it would end in disaster, and tragically it did. Uh, but it's still there, and it is it, the first thing NATO is for, in a sense, is to reassure the new states of East Central Europe. Now, you may think they're kind of old-fashioned and behind the time, and they should be thinking about something else. But you know, the reason why NATO enlarged is largely because lots of people wanted it to enlarge. It was demand-driven. It was demand-driven by Poles. It was demand-driven by Hungarians. It was demand-driven by those who wanted it, and that demand still remains. You know, so in some sense, it's security for them. And it's the answer to your question. Uh, part of the answer to your question, part of the security is provided by NATO. Now, I may want to say, if I was a Frenchman or anybody else, you know, wouldn't be much better to do it through the EU. You know, let's have a European army. But you know, for the time being, people in Warsaw or Budapest and other places, they want to ring Brussels. And they would ring Brussels, they ring Washington. So that's one thing what NATO is still for. It's a, secure, it's a security guarantee. It may not be military in the old-fashioned sense that we defined it, but it's still a lot of security comes through NATO. We haven't found an alternative to that security umbrella and that security relationship since, since the end of the Cold War and all the talk about CFSP and ESDP and, and, and all the rest of it. I suppose the second thing is that it remains because Europeans want it to remain. Europeans in, in the generality. Nobody wants it to leave. You know, there's nobody in, in, on the streets of Paris or Berlin or London today saying Americans get out of Europe. They want it to remain. It's a kind of reassurance. It's a kind of nanny, if you wish, put it benignly. Um, because Europe, you know, when left to its own devices, let's be perfectly blunt, in the 20th century, Europe made a bit of a hash of it. And, made <laughs> and uh, you know, the, 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 end, the, the friend that we can always criticize and get to pay all the bills is a very good friend indeed. Um, 
It's, I suppose the other thing is, I mean, NATO has never been, I mean, this is the old kind of handout, you know, what they give you in Brussels when I used to take my students so many years ago. You know, NATO is never just a military alliance. It's much more than just a military alliance. Uh, but it does also perform some very, very important political functions. It firstly performs a very important political function for the Americans. I think the Americans would feel very lonely in the world without NATO. Uh, politically. I think they feel very lonely and well, very exposed. In some senses, NATO provides it with a kind of, maybe a cover story, but it's an important part of the cover story for its own legitimacy. And the other, the other thing that I think NATO does is, is simply to create certain kinds of conditions in which other things can happen. We, you kind of solve your security problems in Europe as long as you've got NATO. Mm -hmm. Other things can then be, be, be got together. You know, I mean, if you want to even be crude about it, it may even prevent Greece and Turkey one day going to war with one another because one of the things NATO also does, as you go, if you read your kind of ABC on what is NATO for, it is to prevent the renationalization of foreign policy in Europe. To prevent the renationalization of foreign policy is a collective organization to which people combine to. Now, does NATO have problems inside it? Hell, it does. There's an arithmetic problem, i.e., the Americans spend much more hard security than the Europeans do. As we've seen in Afghanistan, there's very few NATO members expending, quote, blood and treasure in the same way the Americans are doing to the same degree. That creates resentments. There's a very powerful public opinion in Europe, certainly, maybe less so in this country, maybe it's growing, against the use of force. You know, and we've seen this in terms of public opinion. But, uh, you know, it's just, again, I'm not trying to make the, the, you know, the core argument for NATO personally. I'm saying that's what I think it is still for. I mean, it's interesting mm. that you raise that issue of, of burden sharing, which was an ongoing argument mm. uh, right the way uh, through the Cold War. It, it's, my sense is that yeah. it's not just that the Americans feel the Europeans aren't pulling their weight in terms of, of defense expenditure, which mm. they certainly aren't. Mm. There is also a great, deep disillusionment mm. on the part of the US military with the quality sure. of what even the UK yeah. can now provide. Sure. Uh, and, th and this is one of the really uh, unpleasant uh, realities that not everybody in the UK wants to face, sure. uh, that we used to be regarded as not quite but nearly equals when it came to the battlefield, that was mm. still true in mm. Gulf War I. Mm. Uh, today it is very far from true. Indeed, the Americans, uh, I think, could legitimately say in response to you, Mick, you know, NATO isn't even a military alliance anymore, mm. never mind being Sorry. something beyond a military alliance. It's, yeah. it's a kind of sham military alliance because well, the, other, you're, the other members contribute really so little, uh, particularly if no, one looks right. at Afghanistan. Well, in hard military no. terms, I think that's true. Well, I, think that's, I think that's quite vital. I mean, I think... That's why I was talking about Europe as a staging ground for American power more than an alliance in the, in, in the classical sense. Look, I mean, one of the things that I've discovered with the Obama administration is the degree to which the European resistance, the French and the German resistance, and mm. the general public opinion resistance elsewhere, including in this country, to the invasion and occupation of Iraq has also become a fact of life well after George W. Bush uh, left the White House. Um, and for some good reasons. I mean, I understand this uh, in the sense that people who are running um, the NSC in, in, in the new White House have to think about if there is a similar conflict coming up, to what extent can Europe play a meaningful role in that conflict as a supporter of what the United States wants, wants to do? Well, they can politically if the United States is very lucky, but they can no longer count on it. I mean, this is not the old alliance. This is not the alliance the way it looked during the Cold War, even immediately after the Cold War ended. It's something very, very different. And any new American administration, whatever their goals are, have to take that into, into consideration. Now, I, I do think this is, this is truly important. Um, and I think 
The question that we have to ask when we try to answer the question that is posed before us tonight is, you know, what is it that will motivate the, the American involvement in Europe? I mean, why is Europe important for the United States? And it seems to me that on a whole range of issues, going from security in area to the economic issues, to issues that have to do with trade, Europe becomes less and less significant for the United States. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the process that we're looking at. Mm -hmm. And this is not about an American withdrawal from Europe, but it's about finding out where this American administration, and in my view, any American administration that's going to replace it, need to keep their focus. And for security reasons, that will not be in Europe. For economic reasons, that will not be in Europe. And that's a break. That's a new situation. Qualitatively new from what has been the situation since 1945. Arne, can I push you a bit on, on something that you were the first to raise, and that is the crisis in, in North Africa and, mm. and the Middle East. Uh, the the I idea of a Pacific uh, America, uh, with uh, Obama personifying it, looking out across Hawaii to the, the rapidly growing uh, markets of Asia, is, is somewhat undermined, isn't it? If the center of strategic action in the world continues to be uh, what the, uh, the Pentagon likes to call the greater Middle East, and if that region is, is up in flames to the extent that we're hearing calls for no-fly zones uh, to be imposed on Libya by guess who, the United States. I wonder how far uh, the, the debate can be shifted a little bit more in, in mixed favor. I mean, even if the Europeans themselves are, are military wimps, they're kind of in the right place yes. if you have to deal with Colonel Gaddafi. Mm -hmm. uh, so tell me a bit about what, what mm -hmm. the strategic and maybe other implications are of this current crisis, which mm -hmm. we're all following so closely in the news. Well, it depends, of course, on how the, the Arab revolutions will pan out. I mean, this is what we'll, we'll have to see over the next six months uh, in terms of how they will be dealt with uh, by the European governments, but first and foremost, how they will be dealt with in Washington. That depends on what the situation will be on the ground. Now, I mean, I agree with what you said. I mean, going back to my point about the staging ground, Europe has today a very significant strategic position. But it's not the strategic position that it used to have about what was happening within Europe. It is what is happening in Europe's neighborhood. And this is something that it will take Europeans a very, very long time to, to get to terms with. Now, turning to North Africa, I mean, what, what, what I see happening at the moment is a set of revolutions. They're all very different in character. I mean, there's very little that connects what's happening in Libya to what happened in, in Egypt. Um, I was surprised about this development. I was in Cairo right before, right before Christmas. <coughs> as much taken aback, though you know, it was easy to discover that Egypt under Mubarak was a police state. And it was also reasonably easy to discover, at least for some of us, that, that Libya was a terrorist dictatorship. Uh, but you know, besides that, it was very difficult to see the kind of instability that has, no, that has no struck. And I do think that for some time, this will probably accentuate Europe's role as a power base for American power. The problem, though, from the American perspective is this. This is important, first and foremost, in terms of oil supplies, and it's important for those who really value democracy and democratic rule, and quite a number of those in the United States. I mean, it's an important issue for the United States when it makes its decisions about how to act in the world. And we should never overlook that, uh, the ideological argument that goes, that goes with it. But, you know, in spite of all of that, in terms of what is happening in the world today that will create the kind of situations that the Americans will have to face in a gener generation from now, it is not what is happening in the Middle East. 
It is what is happening in, in East Asia. I mean, this is going to, and, and there, there are reasons for that. I mean, we'll, we'll get back to the economic argument, I'm sure, later on. But a lot of strategic thinkers on the US side are now starting to wonder, like um, our, our former colleague here, uh, and, and now um, uh, chief economist for, the, for, for, for Citibank, Willem Boiter, in a, in a new report, that we have actually underestimated what is happening in Asia in, in, in relative terms. Uh, in terms of the significance that this will have for the overall picture. Because there are parts that we haven't understood about the leadership role that Asian economies can take with regard to how the global economy functions. Now, my central argument is that this will frame American power when you get into the next generation. So, I mean, I'm not in any way trying to say, you know, we shouldn't look at what's happening in North Africa, we shouldn't look at the Arab revolutions. They're terribly important, first and foremost, for the people who are living there. But they are not going to decide the strategic picture in overall terms for the next generation. Can I well, no, well, yes and no. Uh, <laughs> I say no. Uh, there's a number of things I wanted to go back over. I mean, firstly, let me just quickly say, I, I think the United States will be able to afford a global role economically for a very long time to come. If you look at the American defense expenditures as part of budget during the Cold War, when it was putting out 30% of budget on military expenditures, the American economy continued to grow. Um, now, there may have been problems with military spending, but I just don't buy into the kind of economic imperial overstretch issue. You know, the United States is still expending something of the order of six, $700 billion a year. It is coming down, but it's only coming down by a very small percentage. Military spending has risen in the United States over the last 10 years pretty effectively. Nobody is actually saying it's going to come down some, by some dramatic amount. It's not going to be economic reasons which will make our, the United States, I think, pull back from anything. It may be political defeats or the problems of doing what they're trying to do in, in, in Afghanistan. I just don't see that's an, a major, I just don't see that's a major, it's not going to be a major economic problem, maybe a political problem, but I don't think it's born of defeat and, and adventurism as over, as, as, as over Iraq. Now, on the second quick point on Europe, you may be right, Arnie, I don't think so, however, you know, I mean, you know, it, I, don't, I think to think of NATO simply as a U.S. staging post, I mean, I just, don't, I just don't buy into that. I mean, it is part of a staging post, but it also fulfills functions for Europeans. And that's the point I just want to reiterate. I mean, no, no, no Europeans yet have found an alternative collective security structure to reassure it other than NATO. Uh, whatever the alternatives are, they're all theoretical, and they haven't as yet happened. After all, the great French state in under the less great President Sarkozy, I mean, was quite clear that NATO was its future. Um, and, you know, this is not a sign of a decline of an organization when a country like France, which has defined itself from the 50s onwards as being outside and anti-NATO, joins it. Moreover, if you go to the P5, you go to the P5, when the United States wants to find agreement with, its, with, with the other four on it, largely they will get their agreement with the French and the British, largely. Not so much with China, not so much with Russia. That just does tell you something about some of these habits formed and associations and alliances over, over the very long there time. you're talking about the permanent members of the UN Security Council. Of the UN Security Council. Quite, it's going to come to the UN. All right, I know you're going to come to that, I know you love it very much. Um, on, the, on the question... Especially the Human Rights Committee. I know, well, yeah, I'm entirely with Arnie on the question of Libya and everything else. On the Middle East, however, Arnie, I think it's an interesting question. I mean, you elided it. You did it very slick, actually, if you don't mind. It's a very Norwegian, that one. Um, actually, actually, when we look... I mean, clearly the Middle East is important. 60% world... Are Norwegians slick? I mean, is oil slick, oil slick, oil slick. 
mostly. Um, We're going to do ethnic stereotypes. No, 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 no. Yeah, we do it all the time. We do it all the time. There are actually things we agree on. I think we agree on most things, don't worry. Yeah. Uh, particularly about the reasons the Cold War ended. Uh, we, all, uh, we all hate the Daily Mail, of course. Yeah, we love the Daily Mail. It's, it's a beautiful newspaper. But uh, quickly on the, on, the, on the Middle East. On, on the Middle East. I mean, one thing that does come out to me, I mean, clearly it's still going to remain so important. I mean, 60% world's oil reserves. Somebody, some people may say 50% of the world's troubles and difficulties and all the rest. You know, I mean, that's an exaggeration, but you know, that's the way a lot of people. And I just, it is so close to Europe that, you know, Europeans simply have to have an interest in it in the way that China won't. The second point is, I mean, one of the, I take a rather different view on, on the democratic revolutions in, 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 a, in the Middle East. I'm entirely in favor of them. I hope they work out well. We all must pray and hope for that. However, in the end, I think that if they work out in the way that we hope they do, Arnie, I actually think the United States will be the beneficiary of this, of this process and, 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 not, and not the loser if they work out in the way that we would like them to do. In other words, I mean, if we look at, you know, what is it they're arguing for? They're arguing for rule of law, democracy, civil rights, future kinds of engagement with pluralism, even the role of women has been discussed in that. Now, it may end up in a very different place to where it is now. But these are not values that the United States would have too many problems with. Moreover, the phone calls have been made very urgently over the last few weeks, and I bet you most of those phone calls have been for the capitals of Middle East countries to Washington, you know, not to anywhere else. You know. and, and this, again, gives me some point of contact back what I was saying earlier on about the still continuing important role. And it will be Europe as well economically which has to deal with these and not China. So this, in a sense, does reinforce a kind of relationship between the US and, and Europe, which I think is still critically important. Well, here's a scenario mm. that we should consider. Let's, let's, uh, mm. let's consider the possibility that those voices who have been calling for uh, Western-style uh, political reforms in North Africa and the Middle East are drowned out ultimately by those calling for something more like an Islamist state, a caliphate, or mm. what uh, have you. Let's also consider the possibility that the violence we are seeing right now in Libya is just the beginning of a great deal more violence, which after all has been the pattern in the case of most of the world's big mm. revolutions, 1989 mm. being the exception that proves the rule. Isn't it possible that the crisis in, in North Africa and the Middle East could end up being harmful, not only uh, to Europe, think of the potential flood of refugees, mm. Uh, across the Mediterranean, which, by the way, has already begun, mm -hmm. but also to the United States, which finds itself with yet another military headache yeah. in the region. Now, part of the beauty of the Chinese strategy of quiet rise has been to say absolutely nothing at nothing all on the subject all. of the Middle East and leave the United States to get thoroughly bogged down in it, leaving uh, the, the development of the Far East as a a greater Chinese co-prosperity zone uh, to proceed, to use, a, to use a phrase, to proceed more or less unopposed. I mean, one issue here, which I think we need to consider, is that the whole situation in the Greater mm. Middle East is a terrible quagmire uh, that just keeps growing in size for the United yeah. States, and it's also a source of instability for Europe. Uh, meanwhile, and I think here I perhaps do incline to the the West opposition, the real economic action is in East Asia, not to mention South Asia. Mm -hmm. And there, the Chinese are very close already to being hegemonic. Uh, yep. So the two questions here, mm -hmm. one, what could possibly go wrong in North Africa and the Middle East? Answer, a lot. Mm -hmm. And two, while it is going wrong, 
isn't the opportunity there for China to consolidate a hegemonic position? Well, on the second point, you're self-evidently right. I mean, you know, China keeps out of things, just gets on with its own business, doing what it does best, you know, developing capitalism under a communist party. Um, and all the rest of it, uh, you know, the Leninist road to capitalism. Market, market, market with Stalinist characteristics and things like that. Yeah, of course, of course. And therefore, by not getting involved, by not getting embroiled in the way the United States has been embroiled, by both in what I thought was legitimate reasons in Afghanistan, and illegitimate reasons, by the way, in Iraq, it's a different question, then clearly it gets on with it. And, and it's also benefited, clearly, from, a, from, that, from this economic crisis made made in the United States, which has actually hit the Europeans, at least, in, in, in terms we're talking about, much, much more than it's hit, than it's, than it's hit China. So on, on, on that issue, I, I, I entirely agree. But, but it, still, it still means that what China is doing, in a sense, is, well, if I might put it, extraordinarily one-dimensional. Yeah. I mean, that's the point. <laughs> it's making money, it's doing well, it's making jobs fine. I have no opposition to that. I think we all benefit from that. But it still makes it, in a sense, internationally, yeah. from a political point of view, from a strategic point of view, from a leadership point of view, it still yeah. remains irrelevant. So we well, could be in a mismatched situation of China emerging I, as a dominant economic power. I'm just raising this as a question. I'm, no, not, I'm, I'm not saying, with you, on that. you know, a mismatch between its growing economic power yeah. and, and, and a foreign policy or global. Now, that may, the other may follow in time. Danny has argued that. Yeah. The second will inevitably follow from the economic. But we're not seeing it in, in, in such a way at the moment. If I could I just know. answer that one or, or, or comment on that, Neil, because I, on, on, on this I think Mick and I very much uh, share some of the concerns that come up. I mean, China is in no way at the moment, and I've argued this over and over again, a complete superpower. Mm. China is in no way ready to take responsibility, even if it had wanted to, uh, for some kind of overall international hegemonic position. I'm not talking here about Chinese mm. government statements that we will never practice hegemony. I mean, when states become very powerful, they do what powerful states do. That's mm. the overall mm. sense that I have, of certainly of the, of the bloody 20th century. And I, I would be very surprised if it was very different in the, in the 21st century. The problem that China... I mean, China is, is, is facing two long-term structural problems that we need to take into consideration. And they will influence... Uh, both what the United States chooses to do, uh, some of which may be to its own detriment eventually, and it will greatly influence China's position in its own region and in the world. Mm. The first one is demographics, something that's very rarely thought about in terms of global strategy, but certainly needs to be taken into consideration here. Um, China's population strategy has been a disaster. Uh, in spite of what many people think that the one-child policy has rescued China, what we're seeing at the moment uh, is a aging of the population, that, uh, particularly of the educated population, that's quicker than anywhere else in the world. And very different from that of the United States, which, very different from Europe again, sure. has very healthy uh, demographic growth rates. This is something that the United States will benefit from in the longer run. And one of the reasons, by the way, why the new uh, HSBC report on, on global growth that was out today, and they emphasize, it's one of the few reports I've seen that really emphasizes demographic issues. Uh, see uh, uh, the United States as being, in, in, in the longer, uh, in the longer uh, sense, if it changes its macroeconomic policies, uh, to be able to benefit from much of what is happening in East Asia. Um, the other one is the lack of democracy. Um, the lack of, of, of freedom of speech, freedom of organization. Now, some people will say this has nothing to do with international affairs and it doesn't really matter. It does matter. It matters enormously in terms of the image that China projects to the rest of the world. 
particularly within its own region. But more than that, it matters enormously in terms of China's ability to solve its own problems. Because there will be problems connected to the rise of China, as there will be to the rise of India, the rise of Indonesia. Enormous problems, many of them ecological, many of them very, very hard, hard to solve. And China will need to work on that if it wants to become a complete power. Let's use that term, so we don't use something that the Chinese here will find too loaded. A complete power. <laughs> so, I mean, they need to, this is something where China will need to change. Now, this is not related, at least not for the next two generations, to the projections that we see in economic terms. Those are going to go on. And they're going to be, be massive. I mean, what Boyter wrote in, in his report when he argued that the changes, the economic changes we're seeing now are, are misunderstood, um, he concludes that the Chinese and the Indian economy in 2050 will not be twice the size of the American economy, one of them each being an American economy. It will be at least four times the size because of some of the growth factors that he emphasizes. They're actually remarkably similar to one of the, some of the killer apps that you were talking about. Uh, we have misjudged the intensity of, of growth. Now, is this good or bad? I don't know. I mean, you know, I, I have no, no answer to that. Uh, I know that it would be problematic, and I think it would be even more problematic if the United States, as a declining monopower, uh, is not able to handle that mm. economic transition. And at the moment, I see no, and this is my key point, I see no indication whatsoever that the United States, under the present administration, is positioning itself to do that. Mm. Well, this is uh, perhaps an appropriate mm. point in the discussion okay. to open it up yeah. to the floor. You, you've given a whole new significance to the phrase, the United States in an Asian age, since <laughs> if the aging uh, of the Chinese population is the biggest threat or one of the biggest threats to China's future prospects of being a mm. complete power, that, that, starts to be a really, that starts to be a really crucial word. Um, and I'm glad we got to that point of the discussion because it's vital to remember that China has its problems too. Mm. Uh, and it is not a simple straight line that one draws from here to 2050 in which uh, no bumps. May, uh, may I just seen. ask one question? I mean, I, I, I remember many, many economists in the West Army mm. in 2003, two, four, five, also making projections about the growth of the American economy. And something slightly wrong went happen in 2007, 2008. And we, it got thrown off course. Uh, I, I, I remember too, and you remember this I'm sure, Neil, because you were there, so to speak. There was also many, many predictions made about the Japanese economy in the late 1980s. And I'm not saying Japan, China, all I'm trying to say is, it is difficult enough, frankly, to know what's going to happen over the next two years. I'm simply inherently skeptical, let me just say that, inherently skeptical without adducing any evidence to projections made by Goldman Sachs and others which project something which can go forward 30 or 40 years. I mean, and I'm sure, you know, you gave a great lecture, you know, on, on, at lunchtime on this, you know, in a sense implicit. You know, it's, it's not just about, you know, it's the unknowability, it is the contingency, it is the accident, it's the unintended consequence. You know, who five, six, seven, eight years ago would have predicted all sorts of things about the Western world economy at the moment? Things can be thrown off course. I mean, say there were to be massive political instability in China of the kind we're seeing in the Middle East at the moment. What would that do to growth rate? I just don't know. All I'm saying is it, it's an unknowable. 
Um, there are simply so many unknowables in this situation at the moment that to kind of project forward, I mean, broadly speaking, I take the point, but it does seem to me, just hold on. We've made predictions before about future growth of other kinds of economies, and it's turned out to be really badly wrong. We've got a lot of egg yeah. on our face. And that's all I'm warning about, Arnie. In, in fairness to Goldman Sachs, uh, Jim and his really? projections in the Britain. <laughs> the, well, somebody has to be saying somebody Goldman has to be Sachs. Fair, yeah. I, I really I am, but I will, will, I will at this juncture. Yeah, we'll uh, in, fa in fairness to Jim O'Leal and his team, they, I mean, their projections have been uh, pretty good, actually. Uh, and the financial crisis, uh, if anything, has made them more rather than less plausible. Could I just say, before we hand over to the audience, I mean, I agree entirely with what Mick said about contingency uh, and about accident. And, and if you work on history, as I do mostly, I mean, this is the one thing that does jump out at you. Um, and you should. But we still need to be able to think about the future. And we have to yeah, do that sure. based on history, and we have to do it based on trends. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that really strikes me with the whole debate about US hegemony, about decline, including relative decline, yeah is that if we look at small chunks of history, we generally get it entirely wrong. But if we try to look at what is happening over a longer historical continuum, mm. we get much closer to at least be able to have a meaningful debate mm. about what the future might look like. Mm. Uh, and I think that's what we really need to do in this debate. I mean, we need to go back to what Neil and I have talked a lot about, the changes that took place in the global economy and in many other fields of human activity in the 1970s, not least in terms of technology. And we have to be able to project forward from those. People who look at this will end up with very different results, as, as, you've, as you've heard tonight. But that's the only basis we have for some meaningful thinking about what we may see ahead. Yeah. Well, on right. that inspiring uh, note, uh, that we can think about can. the futures, Future, plural, yeah. remember there, yes, are, multi there multiple are multiple futures, futures uh, from which we have to choose, but only one past. And that was is why <coughs> being a historian is easier than only being a futurologist. Only one past. My goodness um, me. Many histories, yeah, but yeah, only yeah. one past. Neil's past. Yes, uh, so. <laughs> I would like to invite the audience to pepper us with questions. There are roving microphones, roving mics, roving which will mic. rove towards roving you. Roving mics. And uh, we'll, well, we'll, we'll, we'll take a question from one of our, our ideas colleagues to start the ball rolling. And then, please, yeah. Thank you. Um, I actually come to what sort of address Professor Ferguson in regards to who is actually most under threat by what's happening in North Africa right now. Um, I think it's neither Europe with the refugees that are coming and will come in the future, nor the US in terms of geopolitics and oil. But I think it is clearly China. And it's not only that China suddenly has to take up 35,000 of its workers back to China, which is never done before, nor is it just... Um, the, the, you know, who do you call? Washington or Brussels, or do you call Beijing? But I think from now on, and every single revolution or up re, uh, upheaval we'll <coughs> see in the world, people will look to China and say, will it spill over to China? Mm. What we saw now in, in Shanghai at the Peace Theater or in, in Beijing at Wanfujing is only an, the, the beginning of a movement that will sooner or later engulf China. So if Saudi Arabia suddenly has political turmoil, people will look over to, to China and say, will it start there now? Mm. If Oman falls, people will look to China. If Zimbabwe, Robert Mugabe finally falls, will it, will it spill over to China? Mm. So I think from now on, from every single revolution, every upheaval, people will ov look over to China. And China is unable, and I think this is what we saw now, unable to address this issue. 
This is a, a really huge question, and, and it, it is a sign of the centrality now of China to uh, the global system that, that we should care. Sure. Um, the, the fact that China has gone from being 2% of, of global GDP to more like uh, 12% is, is, is the thing that makes this question matter. Of course. Now, I'm, I'm going to risk my neck here uh, and then see what my colleagues think. I don't think uh, that there is going to be anything remotely resembling uh, the street scenes we've had in Cairo, much less the events in, uh, in Tripoli and Benghazi mm. in China. And I think that for uh, three reasons. Uh, number one, if you uh, look at surveys of attitudes of, uh, of citizens, uh, unless these uh, numbers from Pew are completely uh, crazy, uh, the legitimacy of the regime in China is about the highest uh, in the eyes of its own people of any regime in the world. There is not a legitimacy problem uh, in the Chinese street. Uh, and you only need to spend time in China, talk to Chinese people to see uh, that, that, that really the, the degree to which there is dissent is, is wildly exaggerated uh, in the Western uh, media. Uh, the second reason is they have an extremely effective system of domestic policing, uh, which we've seen in action in recent days, just to be on the safe side. I think the police and the media outnumbered the serious uh, troublemakers 100 to 1 uh, in, the, in, the, in the recent uh, mm. uh, events. Uh, and the third thing you have to remember is that the, the key issue really is the price of food in a whole lot of these, of these situations. Uh, and what we're going to see, and we're already seeing it, is China tightening uh, harder than it has so far monetary policy to try to get a lid firmly on, uh, on food prices. They worry about this, uh, and they worry about it even when things are stable in the world. Uh, I think what will be really interesting in the course of this year is to see just how big an impact a China tightening for domestic reasons has on the whole of the rest of the world economy. Because if they hit the brakes hard, mm. there isn't a commodity market that won't be affected. Mm. Now, um, I, I mean, no, what's your right. sense? I mean, what is the, this is one of these things which isn't a kind of a, an unknown unknown. We can try and attach probability to it. Trouble, yeah. trouble in China, what, what would you say the probability I've just been trying to think about this. You know, I, I just completed a book on China's international affairs, sort of trying to take take the longest structural view of this going back to the mid-18th century and seeing how things develop. And I always try to, in a way that I hope will be meaningful to readers, but not quite yet meaningful to me, to draw the conclusion yeah, to see what I actually think about this. And, uh, and also about where, where China stands today in terms of the impact, what goes on inside China, and you're entirely right about that, will have on, on international affairs. I mean, whatever happens, the impact is going to be massive. I think of China today as being increasingly similar to the kind of regimes that we saw in the 1970s in Taiwan or in South Korea or other parts of the region. Um, I've been surprised by this uh, because I didn't think that the Chinese Communist Party was able to reform in the way that it has internally. Uh, to go from its totalitarian pretensions, never fulfilled but still there. Um, over onto a rather run-of-the-mill and also rather insecure authoritarian regime that we have today. Um, I would be very surprised if China over the next half generation doesn't go on further from that, not in identical terms to what happened in South Korea or Taiwan or Japan in a much earlier age for that matter. Uh, uh, 
I, it will not be the same process, but it will be a similar process, uh, is my guess based on what we, what we see today. And what is the reason for that? Well, that goes back to China's adaptation of some of the killer apps of, of Western civilization, less and less Western and in this sense. Property plays a very important role in this, um, much more important than what I thought it would. Investment in the market, which is immensely widespread in China, also plays a role with regard to this. It seems to me that the kind of legal structure that China has somewhat reluctantly developed because it wants to be part of international markets. The Communist Party wanted to join the capitalist international market, and therefore it had to create a legal structure that was able to attract foreign capital because China's growth in the initial phase was to an immense degree based on foreign direct investment. Now, this is a difference from, from South Korea and Taiwan, for those of you who are interested in it. What we are seeing now, I think, is that that increasingly is spilling over onto the civil sphere in, in, in a broad sense. So there are some very brave people who are fighting very hard for this to happen against government opposition. Liu uh, Xiaobo, uh, who got the, the Nobel Peace Prize, is one of them. Uh, I don't think these dissidents are going to decide China's future, but they are a reminder of the importance that it holds for China in, in general terms to move from the position that it is in now over onto a, a, a different kind of organization. But the, the key is that many of those apps that are needed for that are already in place in China. Mm -hmm. It's very good to see my idea of killer apps. As killer, well. yeah. Oh, it's taken off. Can I, can I, 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 I hope you had good sales yesterday. Right, I mean, yeah, I, yeah. Yes, I did. I yeah. did. And, I, I, I'm, I and the television series starts on Sunday. Starts on that's Sunday. That's enough, that's uh, enough yeah. publicity for, that, for our chair here. He's always ahead of okay, me. Okay, let, let, let me, on base of By the way, if we all three of us have a crack at every single question, there's going to be about two well, questions. Yeah, I just so. want, just, just I, a, I want a, a mini app, if I may. Coming back to... Christian's question. I, I think predicting stability is very dodgy. Uh, I remember in 88 lots of people were predicting East Germany would remain stable for at least mm. 20 years. It was the most successful, it's the 11th most successful economy in the world by the way. Uh, a lot of IR people predicted the stability of the bipolar system. If I remember Professor Buzan is there, I think you could verify what he said. He didn't, but some people did. Um, <laughs> We predicted stability, and within, within months or weeks even, you know, the whole system had fallen about our ears, and we, we, we were kind of running backwards mm. trying to say, well, where do we go wrong? Uh, we predicted, and most people predicted stability for the Middle East too, if I understand, mm -hmm. looking at the kind of generalities of things. So, again, Arnie, you know far more about China than I would even pretend to, after you speak the language, you've travelled there for many, many years, and I defer to your knowledge. I'm simply saying predicting stability is a dodgy thing to do. Yeah because we've done it before and we've got it very badly wrong. The, sec the second more general and more specific thing is, I mean, you may be empirically right, Neil, and you always are, you know. Uh, I just wonder, yeah. however, I just wonder, however, I don't know. Uh, let me, I, I'm not going to kind of make the kind of you know, liberal, a liberal economy versus a totalitarian political system. Mm. You know, it is a peculiar formula. Um, it's worked so far. Can it continue to work for another 20 years? and maintain some degree of social order, cohesion, and stability. Again, I simply pose this as a, as a real problem. Not because I kind of want to make a liberal model for the whole world forever and ever and ever. Mm. Communist Party-led capitalist growth has worked so far pretty damn well. But it does seem to be it's throwing up enormous tensions yep. and contradictions. There. And what happens if those 10% growth rates suddenly fall to 5%? Because mm. you know, it seems to be a large degree of the legitimacy of, of China, and it's in its order, has been based on this, this growth model. 
Now, what else that begins to fall backwards? You know, back to, I mean, after all, the United States can still remain legitimate with only a couple of percent growth each year and even less. Nobody questions the legitimacy of America. Surely the concern in China is that when you even go below that, suddenly a legitimacy question comes into being, which raises a question of insecurity. It may be in the short term, and I don't think we disagree on this one, it may be in the short term stable, but I just have that feeling on it when I travel there with no knowledge of, of the country in, in any historical sense or, or the language. I kind of get a sense of a leadership which is deeply insecure about no, what I it's doing. I really get that kind of feeling that they're not a, a kind of at sea, really, mm. and don't, don't quite know what to do, whether it's on foreign policy issues or domestic. There's a kind of sense of not, a, not great confidence, mm. and that's, I suppose, what I'm really trying to drive at. Anyway, but should not. Well, I like my, my leaders to be a bit insecure you like that, and yeah. not complacent, so maybe that's actually <laughs> yes. a good thing. Okay, let's take some more questions. More questions There's yeah. a gentleman there in a, a striped top. Yes, sir. Um, my question goes to the entire panel. Is, um, I was wondering, is, has anyone considered the possible effect of the running out of fossil fuels and um, the effects of the environment? Um, global environment issues upon the question. I'll take a few questions. Well, why don't we, that's, thank you very much indeed. Um, why don't we take, a, in order to maximize mm. our efficiency here, let's take a bunch of questions sure. and then we'll divide them between ourselves. If we all answer every one, we'll, we'll, yeah, we'll yeah. get nowhere. Um, sure. there's, there's a gentleman just there who's got a question. Mm. So, we'll, so fossil fuels was number one. Number two, sir. Just a general question. Do the panels see Europe as always following the states, or will there be a time in the future when Europe takes a lead in world events? <laughs> Who do I call when I want to speak to Europe? The famous Kissinger question. Uh, we now have an answer. It's, it's Baroness. Oh, what's her name again? Thatcher. <laughs> <laughs> Thatcher, I think, is your Baroness Thatcher. <laughs> I'll take a question from the lady in the corner there, and then I should take I some. also have a question about Europe, and that is to what extent is Europe becoming a, a footnote in this whole global discussion, because it failed in its experiment to create a Eurozone, which would be similar to the United mm. States, where countries would act like states and uh, take federal direction from Brussels. Fail the failure mm. of the Eurozone. Thank you very much for that excellent question. Yeah, I thought you'd like that. I'm going to take. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to take a couple more. I'm going to take yep. one from up top. Uh, the uh, lady in the grey, the grey hoodie. There's a microphone behind grey you, hoodie. madam. We we won't hear you if you don't take it. it. Other side. That's it. Well done. The grey hoodie. Yeah. Oh, I see. Uh, my question is, um, Professor Cox mentioned that uh, um, U.S. gained legitimacy with the relationship with NATO. And my question is, uh, where U.S. for gaining more legitimacy of uh, keeping the global order, uh, that they will put more emphasis in Asia, for example, uh, strengthen the alliance with uh, Japan and Korea, and re-engagement uh, military with Indonesia, not longer. Mm -hmm. Question for Professor Westad, mm -hmm. um, and we'll take one more question. Right over there, I'm, I'm trying to be as even-handed as you can see in my selection of questioners by location. Yes, madam. Okay, my question is about the uh, Chinese currency. And uh, there is a huge pressure for the um, uh, currency to go up. Mm. And uh, how will that effectively impact the food prices in China? and the global economic power of China and Chinese uh, money in the world and 
what kind of impact that can also have on China's foreign policy, its economic power in the world, and what it can say and it cannot say. Well, thanks very much. Okay. Uh, five uh, questions, two which really are on economic points, maybe three, uh, two which are really pretty much focusing on, on yeah. Europe, and then, and then a, a question about uh, foreign policy options in Asia, mm. which I think mm. was uh, very much directed at you. Why don't we take that one first? Because it's the, it, it, it's, uh, it's the question which has the most mm. uh, straightforward focus, since neither of us are going to even attempt to answer it. Sure. Yeah, options in Asia, South Korea, Japan, Indonesia. Mm. Well, what we're seeing, I mean, we spoke about this already, I mean, what we're seeing at the moment is a number of China's neighbors, um, more or less all of them, with the exception of North Korea, uh, are trying to find some way in which they can draw on outside, pow outside powers to reassure themselves that China will not become too dominant in their neighborhood. I think that strategy is, in overall terms, going to fail. And it's going to fail because there is no other power in the slightly longer one that can match what China is willing to put into uh, being the leading power within its region. That includes, includes the United States. It may be a bit of a rough ride up till we get there, and it will also, to quite some extent, depend on China's own political maturity with regard to handling uh, relations with its neighbors. Um, so far, the Chinese leadership have not been of outstanding quality when it comes to handling uh, issues uh, in, in East Asia. Um, it, uh, you know, it, 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 it takes real foreign policy genius, not tongue-in-cheek, to develop relations with South Korea, for instance, uh, on the negative trend seen from Beijing that they've had over the past couple of years. Um, so, of course, this depends on, on what leadership in Beijing are capable of doing. I mean, they need to reassure their neighbors that China's rise do not automatically mean decline and threat for the others. Uh, I think China will be capable of doing that by building on some of its foreign policy traditions that go far uh, beyond the, the, the existence of the People's Republic. But they have to learn relatively fast, or they could end up in a neighborhood where quite a number of countries, and I'm particularly thinking about Japan, will continue to hedge against hmm. the rise of, of Chinese power. Um, so I said, I, mean, you know, I, I think China will be able to get there. The sooner they get there, the sooner they develop a truly cooperative relationship with Japan, and they allow and support the reunification of Korea under a uh, democratic, probably federalist government. Um, the better it will be for China itself and for the, for the neighborhood, and probably mm. for the rest of us, including the United States as well. Mm. And, and that goes right to the heart of your analysis about how the world adjusts to a rising China and the relatively mm. declining uh, United States, because in classical uh, international relations theory, and indeed in, in classical history of uh, uh, of diplomacy, the, the nightmare scenario would be mm. uh, some kind of encircling uh, alliance of, uh, of anti-Chinese yes, powers with or without American backing, uh, reenacting late 19th century European politics, something that Henry sure. Kissinger warned about a long, a long time ago. I, mean, I think I agree with you on it, that it's kind of hard to imagine such a coalition mm. emerging. I mean, when one goes to Seoul, uh, mm. they desperately want to have good relations yeah. with China. I mean, they mm. kind of can't quite understand why it's not going, 
going better. Mm. Uh, and I, I encounter very little appetite, perhaps outside Japan, for some kind of alternative, <coughs> alternative configuration mm. to Asia, mm. given that, that the US can't clearly play its traditional role there. Can you just say one thing before mm. turning over to Mick on this? This mm. is where Mick's very important category of the cultural relationships also play a very important role. Uh, Japan is the one that is in doubt here, uh, although if this may come to play a role with regard to Japan as well. But for significant parts of Southeast Asia, uh, and for Korea, and to some extent for Mongolia to the north as well, um, the, I wouldn't call it soft power. I mean, China doesn't have much soft power. It w I don't think it will have soft power in this sense in the future. We discussed this the, the, the other day. But there is a culturally based concept within the region that has never entirely gone away of China being at the center of things. And I think this will help. It will not determine the transition, but it will help it. Just like for the United States, when it became the hegemonic power vis-a-vis -vis Europe uh, during and after the Second World War, it helped immensely in the, in, in, in the US relationship with, with, with Europe. Let's turn, unless you want to jump in here. To well, let's cover it, but uh, we move on to the other things, I think. Yeah. I, I think we should. Mm -hmm. the, there were a couple of, um, of European questions yeah. asked there. What, one about whether or not Europe could ever develop a, a, an independent sure. strategy for itself that wasn't mm. the coattails of the United States. And, and then there was another question about sure. whether we're actually looking at the failure of the yeah. European project in the Eurozone crisis, which has mm. not in fact stopped yeah. uh, despite our switch well, of attention uh, to the Middle East. Yeah. Let me throw those European okay. questions okay. at, at okay. you. Okay, all right. I mean, just to, um, on the first question, will Europe always follow the United States? Um, you know, for 20 years, we, people in Europe have been asking that question. You know, can Europe, will Europe, will the Europeans, will the EU evolve and create conditions of a collective identity, <coughs> a collective foreign policy? And, you know, we go, really go back to the Maastricht Treaty of 1992 and three. you know, that period of mm. thinking about the common foreign and security policy, then the San Malo Agreement between Tony Blair and uh, President Chirac on the time of San Malo, the, the creation of a kind of Franco British uh, relationship within within the alliance, and then of course all the debates which are going now with the Lisbon Treaty post Lisbon. You know the realities are that for those of us who actually did want, you know, a much more not independent of NATO. I'm not arguing for that, but you know, much more coherent European position. Um, you know, it's been disappointing. There's, there's no doubt about it. There's no doubt about it. Um, I suppose, and, and this again is a prediction, and my predictions are bound to be as good as anybody's on this. I suppose about the future. Europe, it seems to me, you know, looking back on its history, and you may disagree with this, I know, Neil, you know, Europe has gone and emerged and evolved through a series of crises, um, you know, through the Treaty of Rome, through the Single European Act in the 1980s, through the Maastricht Treaty itself, which was a response to the end of the Cold War, German unification. Um, and m after much hesitation and much mucking about and getting quite a lot of things wrong, uh, it has emerged at the other side with, with in, in better shape. Um, even enlargement can be seriously attacked for incorporating too many states within it. That's, pr that's a pretty fantastic. That's a pretty fantastic result, nonetheless. Enlargement, and the home to go to was Europe. So before we write Europe off, let's not forget what the European home has meant for peoples of Poland and for the peoples of Hungary and the peoples of Bulgaria and elsewhere in the world. So I'm not so sure 
that this has been an entire failure, as, as, as suggested. However, Europe clearly does face a problem in providing what you might call the hard security. You know, it is not a single state, clearly. Um, Europe has been successful by being peaceful since 1945. We got off war because war killed so many millions of our peoples. And we got off war and we are paying, if you like, the price, in a sense, paying the price of peace. And, and I don't want us to get back on war again. And in some senses, that does create a dilemma. And I can't, I can't, you can't avoid that dilemma. The dilemma is there isn't an appetite amongst most Europeans you know, for tough, hard military things. You pointed this out earlier on. It's, it's the price of the success of the European experiment. It therefore will have to do other things, it seems to me, much, much better. What I really find worrying, though, is not the fact that our military expenditures are not rising up to the levels of the United States. They never will. Mm. Nor can we overcome some of the obvious divisions in terms of nationalities and policy, you know, positions on, on, on international issues. You know, there are still sovereign states in Europe. You know, Poland doesn't agree with Germany, say, on Russia. You know, all sorts of issues like that will come up. What I, what I find a bit disconcerting at the moment is that those who should be leading Europe, and I mean here mainly France and Germany, are not doing it. Uh, and have been doing it less and less over the last, over the last two to three years. Um, Just to go on the specific question so of the Eurozone that was raised. Well, I'm going to come on to that. We've got, we've got an argument which mm. I find very compelling being made by uh, Wolfgang Munchau in the FT yeah. that, mm. that the Germans themselves have profoundly misdiagnosed the problem and are pursuing yeah. a course uh, which is likely, in fact, to wreck the project of the single currency. I, now, I, I, I don't know what I, your I take is on that, Mick, but it seems like no. a very compelling argument to me, it and he's German. Well, also, Paul Krugman <laughs> makes that argument, too, I think. Well, there that is that defect. Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> I just wanted to mention the fact that you, you are here agreeing with Paul Krugman just for the first time. We, we just want that noted no, we, on camera. We have, um, he has occasionally... <laughs> he's occasionally got things. not always wrong. Okay, well, my, my general point on Europe is, I mean, it's, 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 it's still a process. And I, I, I just feel that there's a lot of Euro gloom around. There's no doubt about it. The Euro crisis has hit it. The crisis in Iceland, Ireland, and, and a number of the Central East Europe. All these things have, have had, a, had an impact on, on, on Euro confidence. But let me press you. Could the Eurozone fall apart in the way that some well, people it, fear? It, it, let me put it to you like this. I know you're not a great supporter of the European Union in, in, in the sense that I am. I mean, if it, if it were to do so, and there's no prediction about this, as you, you would say. There's no structural determinism of this. If mistaken policies are pursued, if nationalist policies overcome collective, uh, the collective, collective interests of Europe, if that happens, then by God, we are in deep trouble. We are in deep trouble. I mean, whatever one may have thought about the origins of the euro, once it is there, it is a fact of life. It, become, it becomes the thing in itself. And if we then move where the, this whole thing begins to fall apart, then it seems to me the fallout from that politically, uh, strategically, economically are going to be horrendous from the point of view, not just of Europeans, but from the point of view of, of the world. Because this has been, a, you know, whatever you might, going back to the question, okay, the Eurozone has not created a Euro state, nor do I think it's going to do so, and that may well be a, a contradiction. Nonetheless, the Euro has been more of a success than the skeptics ever said, and I think the most powerful states in Europe will make sure the Euro doesn't fail. It cannot fail, not just for economic reasons, it cannot fail for political reasons. Because if it fails, then the, the project that you, most European states have been involved in for 40 years begins to fall apart. And if that happens, then I think the results of that are, are, are just horrendous, are just horrendous for stability, for all sorts of questions in Europe. Can we so it won't be allowed to fail. It's, in actually, as I might put it like this, it's too big, to, it's too important to fail. Yeah. 
I'm sure they said that about Lehman Brothers at one point. No, <laughs> I never said they it about Lehman Brothers. They said it about the Titanic. They did actually hold every other bank up, by the way. Sh shall we perhaps try to draw the threads together of this discussion with our last two questions that were raised. One was about <coughs> fossil fuels, and, and that goes to the heart of China's insatiable appetite for all commodities, actually. If anything mm. has been driving up uh, commodity prices, it hasn't been speculation by sinister hedge funds. It's really just mm. been China's demand. And then the, the second uh, question on China, what about China's uh, currency? Should it appreciate more? And would that indeed help China to deal with its own inflationary problem? Uh, I mean, Arnold, this is, this is a huge subject in the financial <coughs> world. It's, it's discussed ad nauseam, both the commodity price story and the currency wars that are allegedly going on uh, in the world. What's, what's your take on this? I don't think China, in terms of resources at the moment, if that's the center of the question, are behaving any differently than what Western powers have behaved for the, for the past few generations. Uh, the problem, of course, is that it <laughs> creates an, an, an aggregate demand, uh, which, the, which we probably need two Earths in order to fulfill. So, I mean, clearly over time, this is not about method, it's not about manner, it's about overall demand, and it's about finding adjustments uh, for ourselves here, and for the Americans, and, and for the Chinese, and for all the others who are going to join the global economy over the next two generations, that do not uh, head for the same kind of eco ecological catastrophe that we seem to be heading for at the moment. And the key element in that, in my view, is to reduce the dependency for energy purposes on fossil fuels. Um, China will probably uh, face that problem first, um, partly for political reasons, which will be too, take too long to, to explain here, um, but also in terms of access, uh, availability, uh, ability to transport safely you know, the kind of resources that this enormous growth is, is dependent on. Uh, so this is one of those issues where we may be looking increasingly, also in technological terms, to China or indeed the East Asian region for, for solutions. Now, on the currency matter, I mean, there are two sides, as I think the, the, the questioner uh, mentioned to the, to the currency question. There is a, a trade surplus-related one, uh, which I don't really take very seriously. I mean, those who believe that, uh, that changing the overall status of value of the Chinese currency will help the United States deal in a significant and meaningful way uh, uh, with its trade problems, uh, you know, really ought to go off and, and read a little bit more economics. Uh, the United States has uh, a, a negative trade balance mm. with 91 different countries. Uh, this is not primarily, I mean, it is about China too, but it's not primarily about China. It's about how the U.S. economy functions. It's about Walmart. It's about consumption versus production. It's about living in a way that you cannot afford. Uh, to me, it is as simple as that. Could I, since this is probably just before we are, we are finishing, could I just finish? I, I, I promised myself that I would do a quote from Giovanni Arrighi in terms of summing up where I stand on this, because I was so impressed when I picked up Giovanni's book. This is something that he wrote in 1990, and it shows that you can actually foresee at least some of the structural trends, even though you are you know, in a different age from what we are now. And, and he wrote in, in 1990, there are no credible, aggressive, new military powers that can provoke the breakdown of the US-centered world system. But the United States has even greater capabilities than Britain did a century ago to convert its declining hegemony 
into an exploitative domination. If the system eventually breaks down, it will be primarily because of US resistance to adjustment and accommodation. And conversely, US adjustment and accommodation to the rising economic power of the East Asian region is an essential condition for a non-catastrophic transition to a new world order. An equally essential condition is the emergence of a new global leadership from the main centres of East Asian economic expansion, willing and able to rise up to the task of providing system-level solutions to the system-level problems left behind by US hegemony. And that certainly includes issues that have to do with energy, with, with fuel, but also what, what has mm. to do with, with, with issues that really are not just of consequence to China and the United States or Europe, but exist on a global scale. <laughs> Yeah. Make a last a last word. A last word. I'll lead. I'll Not lead. necessarily a quotation. No, I, I I don't have any. I've got a few biblical ones I could put <laughs> out there, but not not sure. They can work under these circumstances. Yes, in the be, in the beginning, in the beginning, in the abandon beginning. all hope. Abandon all hope. He, ye who enter here. Let me just pick up on that last point of Arne's on um, on the United States because in a sense it it it, it in, a, in a way makes part of my point. We always come back to talk about the United States. You know, which, however we try and get away from it, we always keep coming back to it. We talk about Egypt, we come back to the United States. We talk about Europe, we come back to the United States. We talk about China, we come back to the United States. It does tell us something about the privileged role we give to the United States. And there's reasons for that, which go back to what I was arguing earlier on. Predict its decline at, at, you know, at, your, uh, at your peril. That's, that's my point. Uh, it may be altering the nature of its hegemony. There's no question about it. It's not the same kind of hegemony it had in the Cold War. And it's not the same kind of level of power it had in 45, when it was at the apex of its power, almost Roman in its, in its, in, in its power levels. But I do think you've made a very good point there, Arnie. And I'll, I'll try and maybe answer it in a less rhetorical way than Giovanni, who's, I agree with you, has written some pretty good things. Um, on the question of US resistance to accommodation, you know, I think we've had two, uh, well, we've had three major presidencies, obviously, since the end of the Cold War, Clinton's, G.W. Bush's, and now Barack Obama's. And each one of those, it seems to me, has tried to answer that kind of question about where is America's position in the world. Now, I think Clinton answered the question in purely, largely economic terms, president globalization. Mm. Um, you embedded American power, almost in a liberal sense, I suppose, um, you, you push forward the, the dynamics of globalization and put yourself at the head of globalization and you push glo de democratic transformations, although not in the way the Bush meant it, and put yourself at the head of that. It's a kind of liberal notion of empire, if you like. I think, we, you know, I think it, was a, it was a kind of liberal version of empire. People like Andrew Basovich, I think, wrote about this rather well on this notion of a liberal. And that Clinton was rather, rather good at it, better than his critics gave him credit for, whatever they may have thought about his morals or, 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 or anything else. Uh, Bush, of course, tried to answer the question in a different way, in that military sense. And, uh, now, he did it under extraordinarily difficult circumstances. I mean, I've never been you know, a great supporter of G.W. Bush, as you know. Um, but nonetheless, I mean, 9-11 and all the rest, through, through a curveball of, of the most vicious quality. Now, the fact that I think he responded to that incorrectly and strategically ineptly, nonetheless, what he tried to do, it seems to me, was to, was to resist it was a form of resistance. I mean, I, may, I might put it in that term, in imperial terms. It was a form of imperial opposition, using the hardest power it could have under the most difficult circumstances possible, in order to assert a kind of form of, of the United States. And here, and I think would agree on this. I had no problem calling America an empire. This is what the problem is calling it an empire. It's just a different kind of empire. And Bush's answer to that. Now, the, the result of that, the result of the Bush strategy of assertion, 
however legitimate you might think certain policies were here and there, the, the consequence of the Bush strategy of assertion was to create resistance, was to create resistance to the United States. Now, legitimate or otherwise, it created forms of resistance. Firstly, it created it in Europe. We saw this in the great crisis of 2003 in the, in the transatlantic relationship. It, it created resistance in terms of international global public opinion. Anti-Americanism rose to crescendo levels in certain parts of the world where Amer people have been pro-American for, for generations, particularly in Germany and places like that, even in Britain. Um, and so that form was, it, you know, and this then brings me really to, to, to this, this third phase, I suppose, is, is Obama. And I think, you know, I, mean, I know I'm, I'm kind of you know, seen as Obama's kind of British apologist, um, which I am. Um, but I, I think what we are seeing in this administration, I, I don't think it's a presidency of decline. I, I don't buy into that. But I think there is an acceptance of these kinds of changes you've been talking about and the continuities I've been talking about, that this is the world America now has to live in. It can't go it alone. You know, G8 is not going to do it any longer. You know, NATO alone, in, in its old form, isn't going to do it any longer. You know, it has to bring China in. That was part of the G20. It has to bring these others in. It has to bring India in, which we haven't talked about very much either. It does recognise it, and I think, in that sense, and this is what I suppose my international argument, relations argument for Obama, not about domestic policy, is in a sense he does seem to recognise this this kind of new global conjuncture, and that, in that sense, it, it is an adjustment process. He can't say that to the American public, because no, no American president could go before the American people and say, oh, by the way, guys, we're making an adjustment to a kind of relative decline over the long term. That really goes down well, you know. But I think that's essentially what he's doing. And in that, Obama is our best hope. Don't you agree, Neil? Well, I would only say, Mick, that when I was uh, last in the United States and flying uh, through a Midwestern state, uh, I noticed uh, a very popular T-shirt on sale in one of the airports, uh, which consisted of a picture... Uh, of the smiling face of George W. Bush and the slogan, Miss Me Yet. <laughs> I, don't suppose we'll, I don't suppose we'll sell many copies of that T-shirt here. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I'm sorry we didn't get to all of your questions, but I hope you'll agree with me. It's been a very enjoyable evening's discussion. Please join me in thanking our two speakers. Thank you.